Good morning. You ever found yourself hungry? So hungry, in fact, that you begin to get irritable, cranky, distracted, angry. If so, you are what we have come to call hangry. I know this feeling well. You see, lack of enough food or of proper food, it leaves us sick and tired and worn out. And we find ourselves in those cases trying to fill the void with whatever junk we can, whether it's good for us or not. We want whatever is going to fill the ache the quickest. And in the stories that lead up to our passage today, we have been introduced to plenty of people in Jesus' path who have done just this. People like the rich young ruler who in searching for heaven has filled up first on earth until there was no room for anything else. So I can't help but feel bad when we come to Zacchaeus today. Because Zacchaeus is another person who's hungry. And not only is, his, is he hungry, he is also what I would call vertically challenged. Now, I also am vertically challenged, and I know how frustrating it is to go to a parade when you can never see over the back of anybody, or when you go to a movie theater or a concert or a play and you spend your time doing this, just trying to see around someone, because of course you're sitting behind the six-foot-four man. But Zacchaeus wasn't just short in height. The text tells us in its original Greek that there's more to it than that. He's short in stature. That is, he's short in his ability to have any kind of social power in his community. Yes, he is rich. He has a lot of money. But nobody likes him. If he was a well-liked short person, I would hope that nice, tall people like yourselves would have let him come to the front of the crowd. But instead, the people of Jericho, the text tells us, seem to intentionally form a barrier between Zacchaeus and Jesus. They don't want him to be part of what's going on. So what does a person do then? You turn around and walk away, think maybe I'll try again when he comes back. Not our Zach. No, because he is bound and determined to see this Jesus that he has heard so much about. And so he throws all the rules out the window. He ignores all of the proper behaviors. He ignores any kind of social standing or status. And he runs to the nearest tree and begins to climb like a child. And our story today asks us then a question. How far, are I, how far am I willing to go to meet Jesus? Zacchaeus knows how far he's willing to go. He is willing to make a fool out of himself in front of his whole community if it means getting a chance to glimpse the face of the one he's heard so much about. And I can't help but be reminded of a passage in Corinthians that Paul would later recite when he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. The message of the cross, its humility and sacrifice and grace, do in fact seem foolish in our world. But to those who embrace them, those who seek them out, like Zacchaeus, they prove to be the way to life and salvation. And this is where we think we know what's going to happen. Because if we've been reading anything in Luke, we know how Jesus deals with people who are rich. And it is not in the nicest way. He has plenty of harsh things to say for those who would defraud and steal from others. And so when he gets to the base of that tree and he looks up at Zacchaeus, we expect to hear the same thing. But Luke surprises us because he tells us that when Jesus came to that spot and looks up, he said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home. And Zacchaeus comes scrambling, falling, tripping down the tree as fast as he can with leaves most likely stuck in his hair, and he is happy to welcome Jesus. You see, because while we were all focusing on Zacchaeus' quest to see Jesus, we forgot. We forgot the mission of Jesus, that is to come to seek and save the lost. And we forget and have to be quickly reminded that it is Jesus who is the central character in the story of salvation. He is the host and we are the guest even in our own homes. And that is the surprising thing about God's grace, that when we go out searching for it, we end up finding out that Jesus is already standing right there offering it to us. Not in some far-off, distant future, but offering it to us here and today. Jesus reminds us that salvation has come today. In fancy theological terms, or what we would call this in seminary, this is called realized eschatology. That is the promise that God's coming kingdom isn't just coming then, it's coming now. That it is already being fulfilled today, just like it was being fulfilled then. It is the promise that the in-breaking kingdom of God is occurring all around us if we would just pause and look and see it. And if we think back, if we remember, we will remember that this is not the first time that God has taken us through the city of Jericho. We have been here once before, many, 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 many years ago. In a time after the Israelites had spent 40 years wandering in the desert because of their disobedience and their distrust, Moses has died and there is a new leader and a new generation that is ready to take the promise of God today. And so Joshua is told that he is going to take this new generation of God's people into the land of milk and honey, into the promised land today. And as they cross the river to embrace that promise, they run into a tiny problem. There's a city called Jericho with its massive impenetrable walls. And they don't know what to do, and so Joshua begins to pray to God, and God tells him, here's what I want you to do. 
want you to take the whole group of people and once a day for seven days, I want you to march in a circle around the wall. On the seventh day, I want you to blow the horns and I want you to watch and see what happens. And so the people of God did that and I'm guessing looked quite foolish marching around a giant stone wall shouting at it. But on that seventh day, when they blew the horns, the wall came tumbling down. And the people went in and embraced the promise of God. Because God is in the business of breaking down walls, whether they're physical or they're not. And when Jesus enters Jericho, he is on his way to the cross, on the way to his victory, and he is breaking down walls. Walls of social status, walls of judgment, of sin, of fear. And when the people of Jericho form a physical wall to keep Zacchaeus away from Jesus, Jesus breaks that down too. By inviting himself in to Zacchaeus' house and pronouncing that he too is a son of Abraham, just like all the other people gathered there. And when Jesus does this, the people begin to grumble. They look at one another and they say, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And it made them uncomfortable and I bet it made them angry. Because here is Jesus deciding to go eat in the house of a man who's defrauded them, who has stolen from them, a man who has made his living by oppressing other people. And the good people of the town who are following God, who are doing everything they can day in and day out, why isn't Jesus coming to my house? Why him? And this is the thing about grace that is so tough for most of us to swallow. Because it's like we're in the middle of a soccer game and our team is up two to one. And we are breathing hard and sweating and throwing elbows and all of a sudden the ref blows the whistle and calls the game and says, we're going to call this a tie. Everyone's a winner. Go grab pizza. And we're standing there going, but we were winning. What is this? Because that's the thing. Grace, while it's good, it's not fair. I was in my second year of seminary when I took a class on ethics taught by the professor Aaron Defoe Hunter. And we had a project that was due one day. It was worth 30% of our grade. And so we all came stumbling into the class, tired and worn out from staying up late trying to finish it. We sat down and took our seats. And Erin looked up at us and she said, is there anyone here today who feels like life was tough lately? Who just wishes that maybe they'd had a little more time who needs a little grace, just didn't feel like you had enough to do your assignment. Maybe things have been rough at home. Maybe things have been tough with school or financially. Is there anyone who feels like things just a little hard? Now, many of us in the class kept our hands down for a number of reasons. Perhaps some of us were too proud. We felt like we didn't want to admit that things weren't going okay. Some of us maybe felt that it wouldn't be right to play on people's sympathy, and so we just kept it to ourselves. Some of us maybe thought that, you know, I know other people in this room have had it harder than me this week or this month. 
I'm not going to raise my hand. Whatever it was, out of a class of about 40 students, only about 15 people raised their hand in that moment. Said, I need some grace. So Erin told them to keep their hands up as her TAs began to write down their names. And then once that was done, she had them lower her hands. And she looked at the class and she said, all right, those of you who raised your hands, you get an A. Yeah. Doesn't like it. Doesn't feel good when you didn't raise your hand. In fact, people started to get really angry because we knew some of those people. We knew that they didn't work as hard as we did, or maybe we had seen them out having fun a lot recently. And we began to think of all the reasons why we should get this too. It wasn't fair. And we began to grumble. Erin quieted us down and she reminded us that those of us who didn't raise our hands had had every opportunity to do so. She hadn't taken anything from us by giving those students A's. We would still be graded just as fairly as we would have before it happened. We had no reason to begrudge her her generosity and her kindness for others. See, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Because it comes at a cost, at a cost to our pride, at our delusion for self-sufficiency. It comes at a cost to fairness. It comes at a cost to Jesus' body on the cross, a moment that is coming soon, and Jesus knows it. Because the victorious in life can't win grace. Because it is given to the losers and the broken and the down for the count who take it when it's offered. Jesus meets up with Zacchaeus and he demands he come down from the tree and meet him face to face because that is the place where we meet Jesus up close and personal. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I must. He uses an imperative, I must. Because grace does not ask nicely. It is not polite and it is not orderly. It roars into our lives and it refuses to allow us a chance to tidy up first. There is no time for Zacchaeus to make his house ready for Jesus in his salvation. It is here now, today, and at this moment. And the thing about grace is that once you've tasted it, the minute it comes to your table, you begin to be changed from the inside out. Because when you've been starving for years and you finally get full, you know it's worth doing anything to keep. And so Zacchaeus happily lowers himself from the tree. He joyfully welcomes Jesus a man who has spent his life defrauding other people, whose profession is oppressing his neighbors upon encountering the fierce grace and truth of Jesus, says, look, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay them four times as much. Not just the minimum, not just what is expected. He goes above and beyond in his response to Jesus' grace because it is that grace that compels us to act. 
Grace isn't just a nice feeling that helps us sleep better at night. It changes us and it, it is reflected in how we treat ourselves and in how we treat our fellow human beings. And if we think we've tasted it and yet we can't find it in ourselves to offer it to others, perhaps we're missing it. And this is the shocking part of this whole story. That this grace that is offered, it is not predicated or dependent on Zach's repentance. His repentance instead flows from the very grace of Jesus. And I know many of us here are going to hate that. Because we have spent our lives being told or telling other people that you must repent first and then you experience the grace of God. But that's not how it works. The desire to repent in itself is the grace of God. And Zacchaeus responds to Jesus' demand that he be a part of his life then by offering to repay others. You see, grace always precedes our actions lest we think somehow we earned it. In the story right before Zacchaeus's, we are presented with another rich young man. A rich young ruler who has tried to do everything right but comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to be saved? It is a question we ask ourselves all the time. What must we do? And Jesus' answer is nothing. There is nothing you can do that will earn your salvation. But what is impossible for humans is possible for God. God has to do it. We just respond. Many of us for most of our lives have been silently starving, refusing to accept the taste of grace that God offers us, and we keep trying to fill that hole in our lives with power and money and sex and pride and religion and status and clothes and food. You name it, we've tried it. And yet nothing satisfies. Jesus is standing there at our door saying, I must eat in your house, and we are trying to bar the way, saying, we're not quite ready. It's not quite clean enough. Maybe if you came back tomorrow. But Jesus knows the messy cost of grace. He knows what his eating and drinking with sinners like you and I is going to mean. He is on the road to Jerusalem. And just like next week when we celebrate Palm Sunday in the next chapter of Luke, Jesus will enter the city of Jerusalem on a colt to the cries of Hosanna. And he will leave being carried out, having been crucified. Because grace is a threat to a world that would rather rule with fear. Where the grace of God breaks down walls and sets people free, the fear in this world will bind us up and lock us away. Dostoevsky, in his famous novel, Crime and Punishment, creates a story about grace and God. 
and the real rawness of humanity. And he has a tendency to use the weak and the foolish in order to speak the word of God to the others. And in this book, he takes the bumbling drunkard as he stands before those who would be considered much better. And he has them look at them and he says, at the last judgment of Christ, he will say to us, come, you also. Come drunkards, come weaklings, come children of shame. And then he will say to us, vile beings, you who are in the image of the beast and bear his mark, come all the same you as well. And the wise and prudent men will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And he will say, if I welcome them, you wise men, it is because none of them have ever been judged worthy. And he will stretch out his arms and we will fall at his feet and we will cry out sobbing and then we will understand it all. We will understand the gospel of grace and we will yell, Lord, your kingdom come. The table of grace is not for those who think they can do enough to earn salvation. It is for those who know that they are broken and weak and helpless and accept the grace of Jesus that is being offered. Jesus stands at our door and he says, I need to eat in your home tonight. For I have come to seek and save the lost. And we have two options. We can bar the door with more excuses. Or we can swing it open and invite him in. Amen.